HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised uh, livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Okay, welcome back. It is one o'clock and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we are on the line with Christopher Nicholson. Chris, are you there? Yes, very. Thank you, Aaron. Good to hear your voice. <laughs> Good to hear yours. So, so Chris, we have you in on the show today to talk about the uh, wild sockeye salmon season up in Bristol Bay, Alaska. And I can't help but think you're actually in Brooklyn right now, making your way here through some traffic, much like the salmon spawning against the stream. Yes, ma'am. It's funny. I think the last time that you and I spoke on the telephone, it was through a hilarious satellite connection. I was balancing on top of a four-wheeler perched on a little mound in the tundra trying to make sure that you, you could hear my voice. Well, well, that's the case, right? When you're up in Alaska, um, which you split time between Alaska and Brooklyn, when you're up in Alaska, that's the, your primary mode of communication is a satellite phone. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, pretty hilarious reception. From satellite to cellular, here we are. So why don't you um, give us a little background just to get us started on on you know your business and how it is you ended up kind of sharing time between between Bristol Bay and between Brooklyn. Oh, great! Thank you. 
So um, my family has been fishing in and around the base of the Kenai Peninsula, that big uh, peninsula that juts out from Alaska, uh, the big arm there, for a couple hundred years. My mother is a native Alaskan, and the family's been, you know, fishing and subsisting there for, for many generations. We've been fishing in a kind of a more modern uh, way for the past three generations. And uh, I grew up uh, with my parents on the, on the boat, uh, just messing around on the shore first with little shells and sand. And then I started fishing as a young commercial fisherman when I was 13 on, uh, on a boat. And I've been doing that now for, I think this is my 24th uh, season. So wow. a, a long time uh, tapping away in the Bering Sea. Awesome. So, how long is a is a salmon season? I mean, what does that look like? For, um, it varies from region to region um, throughout the Pacific Northwest. But where I am up in Alaska, the season in Bristol Bay, um, the heavy um, part of the run, which we can talk about more later if you wish, but the heavy part of the run is kind of the last week of June and the first couple of weeks of July. So, the, the time of real concentrated uh, fishing when there are a lot of fish um, moving through the district. Uh, that's about three-week uh, period, and, um, yeah, about, about three weeks. And the, the salmon fishing up in Bristol Bay, Alaska, I know is is one of the most kind of sustainable fishing systems in, in the world. And so there are, you know, kind of regulations and rules placed on you as far as when you can fish, um, are there other rules as far as like how how much you can fish, or how does that how does that process work as far as managing the fit the fish, the fishing in the in the bay? Uh, we're so excited as a group of fishermen to be as tightly controlled as we are. Um, I think that uh, Bristol Bay, Alaska, has had the benefit of witnessing other fisheries in the U.S. over the past now couple hundred years be depleted. And the uh, Department of Fishing Game has managed uh, the fishery there in Alaska since the 50s when Alaska became a state. Before then, it was uh, uh, federally managed. But um, the, the model is that as uh, fishermen, we're not allowed to do any fishing until a certain number of fish have uh, passed by a certain point in the river system that, that we're fishing the ocean part of, um, so not until a certain quantity of fish have passed a certain point in the system are we allowed a window of fishing time. And it's a little bit interesting the way they, the biologists manage this and how they uh, uh, yeah. choose those windows. I imagine they're not sitting there with one of those little metal clickers like when you walk into the amusement park counting the fish. Aaron, it's hilarious. You, you, um, that's kind of the funny thing. They actually are. What? Um, Seventy miles upriver from where I fish, and he, uh, I'll, I'll preface it by saying the um, wild sockeye salmon fishery in Bristol Bay, Alaska, is the world's largest sustainable salmon fishery. It was the first fishery in the United States to be uh, certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, which is an international kind of marine conservation board, and it's, uh, um, so it's, it's a model for sustainability. It's actually the model by which all other fisheries in the U.S. have been adjudicated by, according to the Marine Stewardship Council. So that's the preface. Wow. But what, how they count the fish is just like you said, 70 miles upriver, so 70 miles 
up in fresh water away from where I am, where the fish are safe from, from my nets. There is a white tarp spread across a narrow part of the, of the river there, and there are literally two biologists, one on either side of the river, with a manual clicker going click, click. No way. And they're, and they're counting them by tens and by hundreds. They kind of do it by, um, by shadows. And even though the water's clear, but, you know, if you have a mass of fish moving in at once, they are using a kind of um, uh, average is based on the surface area of water that's covered by a fish. Okay. It's literally a clicker. Anyway. Wow. That's crazy. Okay, so yes. they unleash you and the other uh, and the other fishermen of Bristol Bay. I know kind of from speaking with uh, past guests who do, you know, lobster fishing up in Maine that, that they're it often kind of, because there's such a history of fishing in regions like Maine or up in Bristol Bay, that there are kind of family ties and permitting issues. And and how does it work? Like, say I wanted to move up to Bristol Bay and start fishing. Can I get a permit? Or what's the history there and the access for newcomers? Uh, great question, Aaron. The, so um, another uh, kind of controlling uh, factor in the Bay that we're really grateful for is that there are a set number or a closed uh, a capped number of permits um, that exist in Bristol Bay. And it's around 3,000. It was capped in the early 70s. I think it's 1973 was the year that the, the number was fixed. And the idea, you know, was to control the total amount of fishermen and the total amount of fishing that went, that went on in the bay. So if someone um, like uh, uh, you or, or someone like me, if I want to um, get in and I wasn't already in, I would have to wait until a permit that is currently being fished was made available for sale by whoever was fishing it. So the permits can change hands. They can be, you know, uh, bought and sold, but the number um, has remained the same now for about, um, I guess, getting close to 40-some years. Yep. So the, is that like the, the taxi medallion system here in New York where the, the medallions or the permits, in your case, kind of take on this this outside value or, or can be you know, can be yes. counted on as, like, uh, an asset for a family? That is exactly right. And, of course, the, in the early 1970s, when the number was fixed and the permits were issued, they were, there was kind of um, a, a, um, a grandfathering of certain folks' um, historical fishing grounds and, you know, when, how long they'd been fishing and, and stuff like that. So they were, they were um, doled out based on the fishermen that were currently there. And many families, you know, like my family, for example, we've had the permits in the family since then. We, we started fishing in this, what I described really as kind of more modern style, in the late 40s when my grandfather started uh, gill netting, which is what, what we're doing there. We have these um, 12-foot deep nets that are about 300 feet long, and we operate them by hand. You know, we actually sew the nets together by hand and throw them out by hand and drag them in by hand and all that stuff. I, I kind of rabbit trailed there. Sorry. Bring me back, Aaron. Sorry. No, no, that's exactly Well, that was actually my next question is kind of getting into what what the fishing actually looks like. So you guys have, um, you know, you're building these nets and you're throwing them out by hand and you're in boats. Are you fishing in like one really large boat or teams of boats? Like who's manning them? Kind of give us a sense of uh, of like how it looks. You know, you wake up at what time in the morning and take us just through a day during the oh, high great. season. So my, my family, we all fish together in a little fish camp, we call it, 
and it's perched on the kind of ragged uh, edge of um, a little point that's commonly called Graveyard Point, which is just off the Dead Man's Sands. And it's <laughs> Friendly <a> low, <laughs> Yeah, nice. It's low, scrubby, bright green tundra uh, set against perpetually gray skies and gray water and misty, uh, uh, misty air. And we, uh, on that little camp, we have no running water, no electricity. Um, we do have the, now we have the satellite telephone service, which is kind of limited, but we can at least access that. But most of our communication we do by uh, VHF or CB. Okay. Um, and the, so we live in this little kind of fish camp where we have uh, makeshift uh, buildings that we've uh, made there and uh, well water and stuff like that. Actually, my family, we drink mostly rainwater. We drink mostly rainwater there. Okay. And the actual fishing um, takes place in open skiffs. They're, they're very small boats, about uh, 20 feet long, maybe 7 feet wide, um, 3 or 4 feet uh, deep. They're um, really small little open boats that we operate there. My, uh, each of us in the family is about three people per boat. Um, my brother and I each run a boat separately, and we have two uh, uh, family members or the fish with us, usually our younger cousins that we uh, employ. And uh, then a couple of my cousins uh, run their own boats. There's about six boats that we run, each with uh, three people on them. And uh, the nets themselves, as I said, they're gill nets. They are 12 feet deep. There are corks along the top and lead, uh, lead along the bottom. It's actually lead. It's a, a weight but to, to hold them down to the uh, water. Okay. And we put them in the water by hand and pull them out by hand and drag the fish in and out like that. And so, you, when you pull, you're pulling the fish into uh, into your boat, or how do they how do they get stored once they come out of the water? Exactly. Yes, ma'am. We we um, we actually during the time, say we're fishing for, um, if the Department of Fishing Game allows us an opening, um, they'll say something like, uh, we, we listen on the single AM radio station for the uh, next announcement by the Department of Fishing Game when we're allowed to fish, and um, we listen to the radio, and they say, oh, you're going to have an opening tonight uh, from 2 a.m. until 10 a.m., um, so get your boats ready. Um, we all uh, listen to the announcement there and hop out a couple hours before to uh, beat the tide to the water. And, oh, Aaron, I'm dropped your question. Hit me again. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I just where, where um, I was just wondering, like, once the fish are caught kind of how are they how do you get them in the boat yeah how do you get them in the boat or where do you put them like how does that work yes sorry i was i was rather trying to say about the timing there so during the course of maybe that eight hour uh uh, period that i described we're fishing we try to keep our net in the water as much as possible so in and by law the kind of uh, fish that i do is called setting my boat my nets have to be anchored at each end so we keep the net in the water as much as we can during that time. We try to pull it out of the water. So while the net is anchored at each end, we kind of um, bring the nose of our boat up to the net and, uh, and scoot the net over the gunnels of the boat, and then we kind of walk back and forth across the net, leaving most of the net in the water, and just maybe seven or eight feet of the net is in our boat, and we pick the fish out of the net into these uh, bags of slushy ice, uh, during the course of our uh, fishing, and we 
um, are continuously kind of still in the boat, and they continuously, you know, anytime we have a, um, a bit of uh, space in the pod there, we'll take our uh, the fish that are in our boat and bring it to a larger vessel that has um, refrigerated uh, tanks that we crane it off our boat and put it into those refrigerated tanks so they can take those into market. Awesome. Let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we can talk about what happens to the fish um, from that point on. Firm and young with a laid back tongue. The aim is to succeed and achieve at 21. Just like Ringling Brothers, our days in a sound. Captivate the mass cause the pros is profound. Do it for the strong, we do it for the meek. Boom it in your boom it in your boom it in your Jeep. Or your Honda or your Beamer or your Legend or your Benz. The rave of the town to your foes and your friends. So push it along, trails we blaze. Don't deserve the gong, don't deserve the praise. The tranquility will make you unball your fist. For we put hip hop on a brand new twist. A brand new twist with a whole heap of mystic. So low key that you probably missed it. But yet it's so loud that it stands in the crowd. When the guy takes the beat, they bowed. So raise up, squire, adjust your attire. We have no time to wallow in the mire. If you're on a foreign path, then let me do the lead. Join in the essence of the cool I breed. The cool out to the music, cause it makes you feel serene. With the birds and the bees and all those groovy things like getting stomach aches when you gotta go to work or staring into space when you're feeling berserk. I don't really mind if it's over your head, cause the job of resurrectors is to wake up the dead. So pay attention, it's not hard to decipher. And after the horns, you can. Okay, we are bringing it back in. We are on the line with Christopher Nicholson, who is making his way through the streets of Brooklyn to the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, where we are coming to you live on the Farm Report. Chris, before the break, we were talking about um, how the salmon exist once they come out of the water. So you um, transfer them to a refrigerated boat. And, oh, I see Chris walking in the station right now. Let's give him a second to come on in. Um, well, oh, thanks, Darren. No problem. Welcome. I so, didn't know where to follow you to, though. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we grab him. Thank you. I don't think he knows where the door is. Yeah. So we actually were first introduced to Chris um, about a year ago. We through Heritage Foods USA did a project with him uh, selling the sockeye salmon last year, and then also this year we did a social buy where essentially. Um, through Heritage, we partnered with Chris to um, bring his salmon to the restaurants that we work with and then to uh, mail order customers across the U.S., and that was really an exciting project for us. Chris, here you are. Thank you. Before us. Yay. Thank you. So <laughs> of course, sweet. I'm going to scoot so I can look at you. Hooray. In your pretty face. Um, Handsome man. Awesome. So before the break, we were talking about... <laughs> <laughs> hanging up the phone all right um about I'm, I'm just kind of curious you know i've been thinking you know about having you on the show and you know sockeye salmon fishing has this amazing history and your family obviously has kind of lived through aspects of that history and you know now you know what i've learned from talking with you previously is, is salmon and food in general really exists in this global market and a lot of the salmon fish out of Alaska is actually being shipped over to Japan because the demand for in the domestic market is not as as strong, or maybe we're not willing here in the U.S. to pay the same price that they are in Japan. So 
I want to talk a little bit about you know how the fish is moving around and what are those other things that have um that are part of kind of the modern food system that allow um allow for your operation to exist now so you know you said the fish are being transferred to a refrigerated boat and then taken to market are they out of your hands at that point or what what is your level of control um you know after the fish have been fished really great question thank you Aaron. um a little um uh, snapshot of it. So my family um, fishes uh, and um, delivers probably 90% of our catch, uh, maybe even more than 95%, to a larger processor that we've fished for for several generations. And that processor in turn uh, freezes some of the fish, um, cans some of the fish, um, and then distributes it from there. And then about 5%, uh, my family and I distribute um, ourselves and we've been really lucky to have the um, kind of blessing and um, interest and patronage of Heritage Foods and some other um, chefs in the New York area and in the Pacific Northwest. So about 95% of our catch from my boat goes to a processor my family's fished for for a long time, and then 5% my cousins and I um, sell directly ourselves. I'll zoom out a little bit the overarching. Um, wild market for salmon in Alaska is interesting. These are somewhat soft numbers, but just to give a sense, um, between 60 or 70 percent of the fish um, are sold to the Asian market, uh, to Japan and uh, markets there. And then something like uh, 20 percent um, go to uh, Europe and the UK. And then only, it's um, kind of sadly, only about 10 percent of um, Alaska's incredibly healthy fishery is uh, purchased domestically. That number is definitely changing and I'm excited about um, the publicity and interest and exposure folks like uh, Paul Greenberg have uh, given us. He's the fellow who wrote the book The Four Fish, the story of um, kind of uh, fishing in America mm-hmm. and the future of sustainability. But um, folks uh, like that who continue to remind us the importance of um, using uh, and enjoying and um, getting a lot of pleasure out of our very healthy domestic uh, salmon fishery. Yeah, and that, I, you know, my sense is that it's not that we're not consuming enough salmon in the U.S. It's just the salmon that we are consuming is Atlantic or farmed or 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 coming from some other source that we're not choosing the Alaskan salmon. Yes, indeed, and that 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 sure is a bummer when this incredibly wealthy resource uh, of healthy, sustainably caught fish is available. And just as Aaron said, to corroborate, we're um, one of the largest salmon consumers. I think we are the largest uh, consumer of farmed salmon, and yet we are home to the world's largest sustainable wild salmon fishery. And we're not eating. It's like some kind of a disconnect is happening there. So on the consumer end, you know, I have a couple of questions for you, you know, Obviously, here in New York at the farmer's market, everyone is excited about tomato season. You know, you go to the market this time of year, you've got all of the kind of big, funky tomatoes. And there's been a lot of talk, I think, in in the local food and the sustainable food movement around tomatoes have kind of risen as this symbolic seasonal vegetable. That a tomato in July or August is different and completely unlike a tomato in January. And essentially, if you're really kind of holding to your druthers, you shouldn't be eating tomatoes any other time of year. Now, salmon is also a seasonal product. Um, 
So, I mean, is there a similar kind, uh, you know, should we be only eating salmon during June and July? I mean, should we as consumers, when we go to the store, you know, obviously asking where the food is coming from, but should we be thinking about it a little bit more seasonally than, than we do now? Or is it just that it happens differently in different places and, and we can actually eat it year round? That's a really great question. Um, in the U.S., uh, I'll um, branch briefly into two uh, thoughts real quick. It's uh, in the U.S., um, um, running from south to north in the Pacific Northwest, we have a series of runs of wild salmon, some of which begin as early as mid-May and some of which conclude as late as uh, the end of September. So there is a the range of sustainably caught salmon running in the U.S. and the Pacific Northwest. Um, th- there is a couple of months of time you can look at, and there may be about four months of time. The um, most important or the um, heaviest time of fishing for all fisheries really is in the middle of the summer. Uh, that, that's an exaggeration. Because Bristol Bay is the largest one, and that's kind of the focus of it, uh-huh. that is the time when the most fresh salmon are available because it's the largest fishery catching the most amount of fish. Right. But it's exciting that the possibility of eating uh, well, say, well, well, properly frozen, blood and chilled vacuum sealed fish is available in the off season in the same way that it's exciting and not to go too uh, do it yourself with it. But if you harvest a couple of beautiful boxes of tomatoes at the farmer's market in August and then you can them yourselves or have a friend can them, it's wonderful to crack into that uh, reserve in December. When you're like dying for some color. So there are those methods. And I think a long history of salmon preservation, whether it's curing the fish or canning the fish or freezing the fish, that you know you can essentially look to extend the season in that way. I wanted to, to touch on, you know, there are the, the seasonality um, of the fishing. You know, obviously it's this, this thing, like really the last wild food, you know, not salmon in general, but fish in particular is really the last kind of wild food that people eat on a regular basis, you know, something that's not domesticated, that you're really just going out and it's man and, and nature for the most part, kind of like dueling it out to har- to harvest this. And obviously there's a lot of talk in the news about, you know, climate change and how that's impacting, you know, food production. And I wondered if you could comment on that at all from a fishing per- perspective, if that's been an issue that you've um, had to really grapple with in any kind of real way when you go to fish over the last, you know, 10, 15 years? Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's very um, important to uh, consider, I'm sure many of our listeners and um, Aaron can concur that uh, one of the most important things whenever you're eating a food is to ask where it's from, and there's no exception with uh, a wild food, um, a wild fish in particular. And I think it can be confusing and frustrating sometimes as a fish buying consumer. I certainly sympathize when I go to the market. Um, like, should I get this one or that one? Like, what's the what's a, a way to think about a good way to choose the fish that I'd like to have that's sustainable and a good choice? I think two excellent resources are the Environmental Defense Funds. Um, they um, publish a card that you can find online on their website that allows you to see like which fish are best choices or sustainable choices and also the marine stewardship council has a similar uh, kind of best fish uh, choice that one can make uh, as it re- relates personally to me it's been interesting 
that there's been a growing interest in wild fish and it's been exciting to be able to talk to people about, oh, I'm catching a wild fish that you can feel great about About eating. eating. It's a great wild fish. Have more. Yeah. I know that's something as we were working on the salmon project with you over July, I was learning a lot about salmon fishing in general and, and Bristol Bay in particular. And, you know, there are roles for people to play in impacting positively this industry by, you know, making kind of conscientious purchasing decisions. But then there's also kind of a lot of political stuff happening up there. I mean, can you comment at all on like the pebble mining issue that's going on? Or I also kind of touched on some, um, you know, further south from you, but infecting the salmon run is the kind of diverting of water to to like large agribusiness throughout the the state of California that that is uh, impacting salmon. So are there ways that we as consumers, especially urban residents, can kind of take part in these other um, aspects of supporting sustainable fishery in Bristol Bay? Um, very good. I hope I'm not uh, repeating myself too much um, in talking about uh, wild Alaskan sockeye salmon. That's a great. Um, it's an incredibly safe choice to make in terms of sustainability. So if one is uh, choosing a fish, um, if you have any question, ask, it, is it Alaskan and is it wild? Beautiful, go forward. Um, Aaron had mentioned about the relationship between um, uh, my, uh, my family's fishery and some things like uh, the proposed pebble project or the diverting of water uh, down south. Um, the Pebble Project is a very interesting issue for us as wild fishermen in Bristol Bay. Um, I'll give a 30-second synopsis of it. It's um, a gigantic uh, deposit of gold, copper, and molybdenum that's situated at the base of Bristol Bay, which is the world's uh, largest and most uh, healthy, sustainable salmon fishery. The Pebble Project uh, represents the largest concentration of gold, copper, and molybdenum in the north hemisphere and the way to derive that gold copper molybdenum will be through hard rock uh, mining using uh, cyanide uh, leaching so the prospect of establishing a mine which would have a lifespan of maybe 50 to 100 years at the base of bristol bay is horrifying of course for fishermen like me who have you know many generations of uh, family fishing there and the i mean it's uh, has a several thousand year history already and the possibility of it being um, cranked in the neck by uh, hard rock mining interest is terrifying. Um, just as a little shout out to listeners, um, I'd recommend taking a quick look at Trout Unlimited's and the Renewable Resource Coalition's websites regarding some things that, as a wild salmon consumer, you can um, look at some actions you can take, or some congressmen you can write, or people you can contact about keeping the world's last largest sustainable salmon fishery healthy and unmined. Yeah, great. Well, and, th- and I think that that's, uh, we'll r- probably wrap up there, you know, for, to get more information, to hear more about um, Chris's work and history, um, you can visit the Heritage Foods USA website, click on our ventures page. We have a great um, collections of uh, videos kind of delving more into some of these issues than we were able to do today. I also would highly recommend Chefs Collaborative, a wonderful organization, put out a really interesting kind of primer on how to be a responsible 
salmon buyer uh, that touches on a lot of the issues and gives a lot of those resources like the Trout Unlimited that, that Chris mentioned. And then I encourage you to tune in next week. We're taking Farm Report on the road. We're going to be heading up to Washington County, New York to visit um, Eagle Bridge Custom Meats and then over into Vermont to visit Consider Bardwell Farms, two of our main partners in the No Goat Left Behind project. Uh, you can find more about that on the Heritage website as well on the ventures page so chris thank you so much for coming in today it was awesome to kind of take this journey with you i really i really felt like we were mirroring the migratory pattern of salmon and now you're here and we're wrapping up the show so thanks a lot and we hope to chat with you again real soon thank you aaron thank you heritage at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to call the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's a lot of posturing and talking around raw milk these days and how great it is. But if you really want to get a full-on investigation into the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of raw milk consumption, here's a nifty website, www.realrawmilkfacts.com. It has a laundry list of FAQs, along with information from studies and reports from American and European science communities. If you flirt with raw milk consumption, this is definitely worth taking a look at. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer.